that prayer. And as I said last week, this is a singing congregation. Um, I just, these last two weeks, I have thoroughly enjoyed being a part of the, the singing ministry of your uh, church. Uh, Fred, your pianist, has an incredible gift. And watching Craig, your pastor, leading you today in music and the joy and the enthusiasm on his face, just the joy of the Lord is in this place. And that was a joy for me to, to hear uh, and to be a part of this as you all lifted your hearts, hearts and voices in praise today. It was a, a joyous beginning of worship today. I, I mentioned to you last week, those of you who weren't here last week, that uh, uh, I'm, go I'm doing just a little bit of a mini-series since I've been asked to be here for a couple of weeks and um, uh, on thinking about our purpose and uh, why are we here, what is God calling us to do and who's he calling us to be. It's a question that so many, many people who are serious about their faith struggle with, trying to determine what God's will is in their life. And, and last week we mentioned three big mistakes. I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but for those of you who weren't here, just very briefly, we mentioned three, I have found in my three and a half decades of ministry, kind of common uh, mistakes that people make in trying to, uh, even as they pray, to know God's will in their life. The first one is that even those of us in church sometimes sincerely doubt, we doubt that God has a purpose for our life, that somehow the God, the creator of the universe, has something for me to be a part of in my life. We, we read about it in the scriptures, we sing about it in songs, we hear about it in Bible studies, but somehow, if we're really honest, there are many of us who doubt that God has a purpose specifically for me. A second mistake that we sometimes make is, what if God asks me to do something that I don't think I can do? I don't have the capability, the gifts, the talents of doing it. So I'm a little afraid to ask God because he might want me to do something that I don't feel I have any ability to do. But you know, it's not about how you feel. We said last week, what God is looking for is your availability, and God will make you able to do whatever he has called you to do. God is looking for your availability, knowing that God is able to do whatever he asks you to do. And the third, and maybe from my perspective, the most difficult mistake that we sometimes make Sometimes we don't really want to know what God's purpose for our life is because what if God, what God wants us to do is not what we want to do? What if God makes it very clear to me that he wants me to do something, a part of the church, a part of the kingdom, and the truth of the matter is it doesn't fit the plan I've got for my life and I don't want to do it. And we think, well, maybe I don't, maybe I should not ask God because if he tells me and I don't want to do it, then I've maybe got a real problem when it comes to my walk with Christ. We saw last week that our ultimate purpose in life 
is to be in a relationship, a real relationship with Christ. All the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, we saw uh, after Adam and Eve uh, ate of that fruit and disobeyed God, it was God who came looking for them. Because God created us to be in relationship with Him. Now, my friends, if you can think about that for a minute and get your head around that, that is profound in and of itself. That God Almighty wants to be in a relationship with you. The whole life, death, and resurrection of Christ, which we will celebrate shortly at the table, is a reminder of how deeply His love is for us and how He wants to be in relationship with us. So let's continue thinking about this a little bit this morning. And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. It is on page 976 in your pew Bibles. And I forgot to ask you last week, but I understand it's your tradition to stand for the reading of the Scripture. So I've got a big old note in red here. Stand. So please stand with me as as I read uh, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now, I have to tell you, this, a preacher could preach six months or longer on these few verses here of Scripture. We're going to kind of focus on on just one little part of this verse, but I wanted to read it in its entirety, in its context here. So listen, my friends, for this is the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, anytime you see that word but, something good is coming, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God bless to our reading, hearing, and understanding this morning, for this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You know, I read a while back a little story about Albert Einstein that I kind of filed away, and I thought, you know, that's a little story you can tell from the pulpit one day. It's a story about Einstein. He, He got on the train to go somewhere, and And back in that day, when you got on the train, before they departed, the conductor would come along and ask for everybody's ticket. Now, this was before our times. And the conductor, as he 
uh, was coming down and checking people's tickets to see where they were going, what their destination was, to make sure they were on the right train and that they honestly had a ticket. He noticed Albert Einstein kind of fumbling through his pockets. He was looking frantically through notes, through his briefcase. He had this kind of harried look on his face. And, and when he got there, Einstein looked up at him and said, I, I can't find my ticket and I don't know where I'm going. The conductor said, Mr. Einstein, we all know who you are. He said, that's great. He said, I know who I am, but I don't know where I'm going. Now, you know, I read that and I thought about that, and I thought, you know, there are a lot of people in life today who are frantically living their lives but really don't have a clue where they're going or even what they're doing. In the last two years since I've retired, Susan and I have led a couple of trips to the Holy Land. I've taken a number of members of my congregations that I've served. Life-changing experience. And it's always fascinated me, archaeology, when, you, when you're traveling around Israel and all these biblical sites, you know, you stop at this place and you see this big old pile of rocks uh, they're in the formation of uh, a building and the archaeologists are out there not with shovels and picks but with, you know, paintbrushes scraping the sand away to go a little deeper. And, and it's always amazed me how they can dig up whole communities and, and learn about what the people did and they, they, they can find churches and synagogues, learn about their worship. That's always fascinated me, but every once in a while, you know, they'll dig up something and they don't know for sure what it is. I mean, if you dig up a bowl, it's pretty obvious what that's for. You dig up a cup, you, you, you unearth a column that was obviously holding up a roof of some structure. That, that's pretty obvious, but sometimes they'll dig up something and they don't really know what it is. They don't know what its purpose was. But you know, just because they don't know what that purpose was, the person who made it, made it for a specific purpose. You and I have been created by God for a specific purpose in our lives. Now granted, some of us take a longer time struggling to find what that purpose is than others. Part of the reason it takes some of us a longer time is because of those three mistakes I just reiterated a moment ago. But God created us for a purpose. And the, the discovery of that purpose is a challenge for all of us who have heard the call of God to come and to follow me. As I mentioned a moment ago, it begins all the way back in Genesis 1. The Bible tells us we are created in the image of God. We have a purpose even in our creation. One of the most beautiful verses of Scripture, Psalm 139, verse 12 to 14, says this. Let me read it. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Somehow deep in the very core of our being, 
We may not always understand it, but we know that we are here for a purpose. Job, in the midst of all of his problems, in the midst of all of the not-so-good advice given to him by his friends, in the 33rd chapter of Job, we read the Spirit, Job says, the Spirit of God has made me. It's like Job is clinging to something to help him in the suffering he has experienced. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In the midst of the crisis of his life, it's as if Job is going back for a minute to remember who he is. Created in the image of God. Isaiah, the 43rd chapter of Isaiah, he says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, this is God speaking, whom I created for my glory. There's, There's a reason for our being There's a purpose in our life created for the glory of God. And then in our passage today in Ephesians chapter 2, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's another purpose to our lives, to do the works of Christ, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a goal for all of us in our lives as followers of Jesus. Are we doing the work that God has called us to do? My friends, we have a purpose in life. And even if that purpose has puzzled you for some time in your life, That doesn't mean it's not there. But you know, reality, again, is that sometimes in our search to discover God's will, we begin that search from the wrong starting point. Let me explain what I mean. Think about this for a minute. When somebody asks you about the purpose of your life. We typically, we typically ask ourselves self-centered questions like, what do I want to do? Who do I want to be? What do I think would be important for me to do in my life? What do others think I should do in my life? What do my parents think? What does my spouse think? What do my children think I should do? What are my dreams? What are my goals? What are my ambitions? Now you see where I'm coming from here. And as a result of this almost indoctrination in our culture that it's all about me, you walk into any bookstore Google it online now, and there are an infinite number of self-help books to help you determine who you are and what you need to do to find happiness in your life. They all encourage you to set your goals. Do what you want to do. You are the one who determines what is important in your life. 
you know, God wants us to be happy in our life. But being successful in the eyes of the world, now this is very important, being successful in the eyes of the world and fulfilling God's purpose in your life are not always one and the same. Those of you who are a little older in life know that you can reach your goals you can achieve all of your objectives. You can accomplish all of your dreams. You can have all of the toys you want in your life. But still in the core of your being, not have joy and not have peace. And there's something within you that says you have missed the mark. You know, it's a terrible feeling and I, as a pastor, have talked to many people in their lives, unfortunately, who have experienced what I'm about to share. They have reached what they thought. They have, they have climbed to the top of the ladder of what they thought was success, only to discover that they had put the ladder on the wrong wall. Now think about that for a minute. They had everything the world says you ought to have. They bought into it. They gave their life to it. They sacrificed their families, their children to get what it was they wanted. And when they got it, they realized they put the ladder on the wrong wall. So my challenge to all of us in looking for what my purpose is, instead of asking yourself, what is my purpose? Ask yourself, what is God's purpose for your life? What does God want me to do with my life? Because I promise you, that is where you will find your joy and your meaning and your purpose. It's not about me. Boy, does that fly in the face of our culture today. It is not about me. It is about God. And as followers of Jesus, he said, come and follow me. That means you follow him, not what so many of our prayers are. Lord, come bless what I want to do. Instead of giving me the grace and the strength to do what you want me to do. And here's where we go back to one of my points last week. We will never discover God's will, we will never discover his purpose apart from a very real personal relationship with God. I'm not talking about knowledge of God in our heads. I'm not talking about you can be proud of the fact that you attend church every Sunday the doors are open. I'm not even talking about your being a part of a covenant group or a Bible study group or feeding the poor and the hungry. All of those things that God asks us to do. I'm talking about has your life been transformed through your faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by God's grace. We are not to live, if you look at the early part of that chapter, as we used to live. Have we been transformed 
in the power of God? Have we become that new creation Paul talks about in Corinthians? We are saved by God's grace for the work that Christ has created us to do. You know, I used to love preaching series of sermons on biblical characters because, boy, do we find ourselves in those biblical characters. We, we read them and we think, oh, golly, these are fascinating stories. But when you start thinking about them in relation to your life, my goodness, sometimes it's frightening how well we begin to relate to those biblical characters. Many of us, like the characters of the Bible, want desperately God in our lives. The problem is, we want God on our terms, not on His terms. Look at Judas for a minute. We all know the story of Judas. For 30 pieces of silver, Judas betrayed Jesus. Now, my friends, he did not betray Jesus because he wanted to get a little bit more money. That, that was a lot of money then. But that was not the motivation to get money. In fact, when he realized what he had done, he threw it back at the priest. He did it because he thought he was following the Messiah, but the Messiah was not doing what Judas thought the Messiah should do. So he's thinking, I'm going to force his hand here. He's not going to let anything happen bad to him if he's the Messiah. I'm just going to expedite this process a little bit. Not that he didn't want to follow Jesus, but he wanted Jesus on his terms. Another wonderful example that everybody here knows about is the rich young ruler. A lot of people, I think, if they're honest, can equate with him. He comes to Jesus, Lord, and he's basically saying, I'm a good man. I've kept all of the commandments. Got a little issue with pride there, but I've kept all of the commandments. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, he knew there was still something missing in his life. And Jesus said, it's not difficult. Just give away all your possessions and come and follow me. Now, Jesus didn't say that because he wanted this rich young man to become poor all of a sudden. There were many wealthy people that supported and helped the disciples in Jesus. He said it because he knew in the core of that young man's heart, his possessions were more important than his relationship with God. And you know, it's interesting, the Bible says when the young man heard that, he, did, he didn't try to debate, he didn't negotiate, he didn't try to argue, he didn't try to change the subject. The Bible just says his countenance fell. God had pierced into the very heart of who this young man was. And he turned and he walked away. He walked away from Jesus. Because he could not, let me say this, he would not do what Jesus asked him to do. He asked, one of my mistakes, remember, he asked, God told him, and then he turned 
and he walked away. Not a good place to ever find yourself in. And then one of what I think is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It's in the 6th chapter of John, verse 66. I find this kind of interesting. John 6, 6, 6. A rather significant number, not so good in the Bible. But John 6, 66. Jesus has been teaching in John about what it means to be a disciple. He's talking about, I am the bread of life. Most appropriate as we begin to take communion in a few minutes. But some of those following him, some of the great crowd that was following him after Jesus finishes, they say, this is hard teaching. And the Bible says, many turned and no longer followed him. Because Jesus was not saying or doing what they wanted to hear. Let me just say, my friends, in all honesty and fairness, it's not easy to be a disciple of Christ. I say that because Jesus said in Matthew 20, anyone who wishes to come after me must take up their cross and follow me. Now, the disciples knew literally what that meant. Jesus says in Matthew 16, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Climb that ladder of success. And then forfeit his very soul. The church, I fear, has made it sometimes kind of easy for people to get to know all about Jesus, but not really understand what it means to follow Jesus. The church has said, come on in, our doors are open, come on in. Make your profession of faith in Christ. Ask God for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. But what we forget is the transformation of our life that needs to happen when that reception of Christ in your life is real. Sometimes the church is... Making it easy is not the right phrase, but I don't know a better way to say it. It's just made it easy to be a part of the church but continue to live your life as if nothing has really changed in your life. You hear God loves you, you hear God forgives you, and that's critical to hear. But there's also the component of transformation of your life that God does for us when we give truly our heart and life to Him. When Jesus said, come and follow me, It changed the life of every disciple. Then, and I believe now as well. That doesn't mean you have to leave Charleston. It might. He might call you to leave. But it means you're willing to do, to share, to give, to serve. However, he calls you to serve. 
my friends, we find our purpose. We find our purpose in deepening our relationship with Him. Jesus said, go and make disciples. There's a purpose for all of us, not just the preachers. He said, come and follow me. There's a purpose for our life. He said, love one another as I have loved you. Do we do that? Get real personal for a minute. Look in your life. Do you love people as God loves you? And if that's not hard enough, he says, forgive as I have forgiven you. How many of us to this day in this church are carrying grudges against other people that we cannot forgive them for what they have done for us? My friends, you are not hurting them. You are hurting yourself. Jesus says, forgive others as the Father has forgiven you. That is the standard of measurement that will be used. So the challenge as we wrap this up this morning and come to the table, the challenge for all of us to ask ourselves, you don't need other people to answer this question because this has to come from the very core of your being. Is my life noticeably different because of my walk with Christ? When other people look at me, do they really see Christ? in me is the repentance that I profess on Sunday morning reading the prayer of confession real or just words that roll religiously off of my lips can I say that my life has been transformed by the power of the gospel God wants us to grow spiritually because he wants us to become more Christ-like in our walk with him. Christ-likeness is about the transformation of our character. And this transformation of our character is one of God's great purposes for your life and for my life. The good news today I leave you with is that God is in the business of transformation. God is in the business of transformation. Ephesians 2.10 again says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus' call to the disciples was simple. Three words, come and follow me. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we prepare this morning to come to this table, remind us that we have been saved by grace through faith. Not of our own works, lest any of us should boast. We have been saved by grace because you've called us. You died for us. 
He rose again from the dead for us. So that through our faith we might be transformed more and more into the likeness and the image of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. In his name we pray. Amen.